we are going to answer the question, what about speaking in tongues? What does the Bible say about that? What is that? What is that not? And uh, what should we know? And, and then we're also going to answer the question, what about being slain in the Spirit? Now, I'm curious, how many of you in here have ever heard of that before, being slain in the Spirit? Okay, it's a thing. Uh, it's out there in the world of Christendom and churches, uh, on TV, being slain in the Spirit. We're going to figure out, what does the Bible say about that? And uh, what is that? And is that something we should do or not do? Or is that okay or not okay? What is it? Uh, and then the last question I want to address tonight is that question of the unforgivable sin. When it comes to the topic of the Holy Spirit, there's a part of Scripture where somebody is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says it's unforgivable, it's unpardonable. And we're going to figure out about that. Is that something that we can commit that sin or not? So I hope you're excited for this. You ready to go? Got your Bibles with you? All right, if you got your Bibles, let's go ahead and, and take out those Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, I've got two goals for tonight, two things. If we accomplish this, we'll be doing just fine. Uh, I would like you tonight to leave determined to always search the Scriptures. Leave determined to always search the Scriptures. And then the second goal for tonight is that we would just simply learn something. Learn what the Bible says about these controversial issues if we can uh, determine to search the scriptures and we can learn something tonight, we did a good job together. Um, I, I want to talk to you. Uh, here at Fellowship, there has been a rich history of valuing the truth. The truth. And when we say the truth, we're not saying what you think is the truth or what the world says is the truth or what you hear on the news as the truth. Uh, during the last few years in politics, there was some new term that came out called alternative facts, right? And, and we would hear these, these terms, and uh, sometimes people say truth is what, what I think it is, and, and what's right is what I say is right. Well, here's where we're going tonight, and I just want to clarify where we stand, is that we're truth-sharing. That means we believe the Bible has the power to transform lives, and it is our authority above culture, tradition, and opinions. Let me explain that. When we go through this tonight, I'm not giving you my personal experience. Personal experience for you is your personal experience, but what we need to get into here is what does the Bible say about these topics? What does the Bible say? Not what did I learn in a church when I was younger, not what did I see on TV, but what does the Bible have to say about it? Because it's the Bible that's unchangeable. It's, it's the Bible that we follow. This is where we get our guide. This is our guide. This is our, our law, our truth. It's all found right here. Um, uh, a lot of times with these topics of speaking in tongues, being slain in the Spirit, and even this question of blaspheming the Spirit, um, people shape their understanding by what they experienced in a church. Maybe in the past. Maybe somewhere you used to attend or somewhere that you've seen or a preacher that you've gone to listen to, and, and that personal experience, or many times what somebody taught you, maybe you heard from a friend or saw a YouTube video, you just thought and took it as it was and said, hey, that's a thing. Let's roll with that thing, and let's just believe that. I want you to say, hey, tonight I'm going to look at the verses where the Bible speaks on these topics, and I want to just observe what does it say, what is actually taking place and how does that affect us today with this topic? 
Uh, I, I only have, you know, uh, a normal teaching time here. I can't speak on this for hours. But in the time we have, I'm going to answer these three topics and these three questions. So uh, here's where we're going, and here's what you always need to remember is, what does the Bible say? So here tonight, why don't we just get that in our minds and say it out loud together, what does the Bible say? Let's try it again. What does the Bible say? Listen, you won't go wrong in any issue if you're asking the question, what does the Bible say? So many times we get questions as pastors, you get questions about something that's going on in church, something that's going on in the world, something you hear on the news, and it's, it seems new and different and you don't understand it. Don't go ask a friend. Don't go ask uh, Fox News or CNN or whoever. Don't go to Google. Figure out what does the Bible say. You answer that question, you'll be starting off from a right foundation. So, what does the Bible say about speaking in tongues? This is going to be great. This is going to be exciting. Here we go. Let's look in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is the first occurrence uh, of this speaking in tongues. Uh, It's found right here in the book of Acts. I want to read it word for word. I don't want to summarize it. I want to read it and I want to explain it to you. Uh, And I want to just observe some things uh, at face value, what, what the Bible is saying here. So let's look at Acts 2 verse number 1. We'll get into this. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, in Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt. See, good thing you're not up here reading these words, right? Uh, and Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? So you've got this story, this first mention in the book of Acts, and these Then these disciples are here, and they were told to stay in the upper room. They were told to pray, and they were going to wait for the Holy Spirit. Because as we read, it's in John 14, Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send this comforter. The comforter is going to be the spirit of truth, and he's going to be convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He's going to teach you all things. We learned that the Holy Spirit was going to come and dwell in man, the, the, the person of the Trinity, fully God, this Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came on that day, it's the day of Pentecost, 
there's this whoosh, 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 rushing mighty wind, right? You could imagine uh, when you hear the, the wind blowing, you, you ever been in the house where you have like both doors open and the wind comes through so fast it like blows the doors closed? That's kind of the idea. It's just a rushing wind, this sound, and they see this fire and it's, it's right there above them. And they were all given this special ability. I want you to look here at this special ability in verse number four. I just want us to read it again for emphasis. Verse number four, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. Now, this is the question of the issue. What does that mean, speak with other tongues? If you are familiar with the topic of speaking in tongues, most of the time in today's world, speaking of tongues is an unknown language. It's, a, it's an unintelligible, um, uh, put-together mix of syllables, and, and that's what speaking in tongues is. It's many times referred to as a prayer language, but I want you to see here, when the Holy Spirit came and gave these men this ability, the Bible said they were speaking with other tongues as he gave them utterance. And it says there were all these people from all these other countries that I've already read that I'm not going to read again. But I want you to look in verse number 6. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. They were confused. Yet all these people from one location, Galilee, and they all spoke the same language normally. But here, in this passage, the Holy Spirit somehow allowed them, looking at the end of verse 6, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. What's the next word? Language. Language. Uh, you ever hear the phrase native tongue? Usually when somebody uses that phrase, in my native tongue. They're talking about, I came from a place, I spoke a different language. My native tongue, right? You, uh, you come maybe from Africa and you come here. And maybe you spoke a certain language in Africa. Or you come from Canada and you spoke French. Maybe French is your native tongue. The word tongue is interchangeable. It, it is the word language. You follow me? It is the word language. So let me kind of have a a crafted working definition here of tongues, the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what was happening is, is that this gift of tongues is speaking in a language a person does not know in order to minister to someone who does not speak that language. Let me explain. These men, they were able to communicate the gospel message and they were speaking languages they had never learned before. Real languages, like French and English and Chinese and whatever language you know or could know. These men that were there needed to hear a message, needed to hear the gospel preached. This message was to be confirmed by miracles. And this message was confirmed because, man, they were speaking in languages they had not yet learned. I want to make a few observations. Um, this speaking in tongues, in other languages, this ability was not learned. They never sat through training to speak in tongues in the book of Acts. It was, the Bible says the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit was there, rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues of fire, and then they had the ability. It was a supernatural gifting. You follow me? It wasn't something that somebody said, listen, You've got to learn how to speak in tongues. You need to learn how to say these things. Just go ahead and practice it. It's not like learning to dribble a basketball or ride a bicycle or whatever uh, learned ability that you can learn. 
this was not learned. It was given by the Spirit immediately. Do you see that in there? The second observation I want to make uh, was, again, in verse 6. These were known languages, not randomly spoken syllables and sounds. Verses 7 to 8. Let's read those again. And they were all amazed and marveled and saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue or in our own language where we were born? Verse 7 through 8 clarifies that the people heard words that they understood. You following me? So if you say, what is tongues, speaking in tongues in the Bible? When speaking in tongues came into Scripture here, and the Holy Spirit is referenced here, giving these men the ability to speak in tongues. They were speaking in known languages of that time. They had this gifting to speak to people that they didn't even know the language of. It's, it's as if you went on a missions trip to Mexico and somehow you never took Spanish classes and you learned you just could speak Spanish. You just could communicate. It's like uh, our missionaries, you know, now wherever, whenever they go on the mission field, most of the time they have to take language school. It's like the missionaries got to skip language school. They didn't have to learn how to speak that language. The Holy Spirit gave them the ability to do it. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, because this is not the complete picture of the mentioning of tongues in the Bible. So let's, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look in chapter 14. Now, if you know anything about this church in Corinth, they were known as a, a carnal church. Now, this makes a lot of sense after going through our study, because Carnal means fleshly. They followed what they wanted to do, not what God wanted them to do. Uh, They just had sin present in the church and a lot of error and a lot of things going on there that uh, Paul had to come and he had to set those things straight. He had to make make known what was going on. So in, in this church, people were speaking in these languages, in these tongues. And I'm going to read all the verses just like I did in Acts 2. Um, but it, it, there was a lot of confusion going on. A lot of like, what in the world is happening here? Um, so let me just read it, and I want to explain some things about kind of what we see today and how that parallels with what's, go- what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, let's look in verse 1. Uh, Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. And we, we had a whole session about spiritual gifts and what, which ones were for today and which ones are past and, and how, how the Holy Spirit gave people spiritual gifts, right? He says, desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. That spiritual gift of uh, prophesying is that forth-telling. That's uh, teaching the scripture, teaching uh, what the doctrine passed down from the apostles, teaching what Jesus taught us, right? That prophecy. Uh, verse 2 says, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, let's go ahead and insert that word language, for he that speaketh in an unknown language or tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, to exhortation, and comfort. He says here that, In this church, there were certain men speaking in what he called an unknown tongue, an unknown language. So we could parallel this to what's going on today in different churches and and the people that are speaking in tongues. Let's say it is those unintelligible syllables. Many believe that that is a a language that only 
God can understand. It's coming out of them and the Spirit gives them utterance, what have you. But the Bible here says that uh, these men, they're speaking. Nobody in the church understands what they're saying, but only God does. It's mysteries. But the one that's prophesying, the one that's teaching, is speaking to men to edification, meaning uh, they're, they're standing before people and, and using the language they understand, like, like we're doing tonight. We're speaking in a way that you understand the words, you can think about it, you can evaluate the scripture, and you can live it out. It edifies, it exhorts, it encourages, and it comforts. Verse number four, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye, that ye prophesied. Uh, for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? Now, let me, uh, let me make a few observations here. Nowhere in this passage is Paul ever clarified to say what this unknown tongue is. Many would use this to defend or, or, or use this to explain uh, speaking unintelligible syllables, you know, put together, uh, uh, speaking in tongues as, as of today. But he just says, it's an, uh, you, you've got people in the church that are speaking an unknown language. We've we got English-speaking people here. Mainly, I don't know, does anybody in here by chance speak a different language? That'd be interesting. Anybody? Does everyone in here understand English? Raise your hand. Okay. This is perfect illustration. He's saying, listen, if somebody comes in here and they sit up here and they start speaking French, nobody in here knows French. They're just, they're not helping the church, they're helping themselves. They may speak something and the only person in the whole church that understands them is them. That's what he's saying here. He said, I, I would much rather everybody prophesy or teach or speak in English, speak in the language that's known to the people. He said, what, what does it profit you in verse number six? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. Uh, according to Paul, speaking in tongues is valuable to the one hearing God's message in his or her own language. But it is useless to everyone else unless it is interpreted, interpreted or translated. Uh, and I know many times uh, here in this church and even on the mission field, uh, Pastor Tony, I know, has, has experienced this. You go to a place where they speak a different language and you speak English. I, I had this experience when I went to the Czech Republic and I spoke to a whole crowd of people that they did not speak English. It wasn't their language, but I spoke with an interpreter. Somebody was explaining to them the teaching that I was teaching. And that's what's going on here in this passage. It's, it's describing, all right, some of you are taking this gift of tongues and you're speaking in all these languages, but nobody understands you. And it would be better that you teach to exhort with an interpreter. Uh, so everybody in the, in the congregation understands. Let's look at verse number 12. In verse number 12... Uh, Paul says, even so ye, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. 
This church was pumped up, and they said, I just want the gifts. I want the spiritual gifts. I want to speak in other languages. I want to whatever all the spiritual gifts were. And he said, listen, most important thing here that I need to set straight is what you're ministering to. you got to minister to the people and edify them in a way that they can follow you and understand. He said, seek that you may excel to the edifying or the building up of the church. Uh, Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue or language pray that he may interpret. So like if, if you can't speak English and you're coming here and speaking French, you need to ask God for help to interpret that. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Now here is what I can tell you uh, from, from this here. Paul emphasizes order in the church. He emphasizes that there's a proper way to go about things in the church. And, and I do recognize that he talks about uh, praying with the Spirit, the idea that God understands a language that you understand and nobody else understands. But the main thing is, he says, I'd rather say five words that everybody in church understands than 10,000 in a language they do not understand. He, he places a value on edifying the church with the teaching and the doctrine uh, let's look, uh, continue, because the passage does continue. I want to look down in verse number 26. Verse number 26. Paul says this, he continues, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine or teaching, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Saying, we're coming into church here. It's like five of you that have something to say. Some of you have a song to sing. Some of you are speaking in an unknown language. This thing is out of order. It's confusing. He says in verse 27, If any man speak in an unknown tongue or language, let it be by two or at the most by three. Like, not everybody's going to be doing this thing. One, two, three. That by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter... Let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets or those that are proclaiming God's word, those forth tellers, speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets for God is not the author of confusion, Amen. but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. I want to pause there and just highlight this verse 33. God is not the author of confusion. Uh, we understand that God would like things in the church to be done decently and in order. He says, listen, listen, y'all are, everyone's got a song, a, a word, a thing to say, something to do. 
let's put some order to this here because the goal is that everyone that comes would be edified. We want to edify the body. We want to build us up because we've got a mission to accomplish. We've got things to do for the Lord. It's not confusion. God doesn't author confusion. Uh, there, there are only certain things that, uh, that we can actually show via online and video and stuff like that. But I would challenge you, please, uh, to, to search on Google at some point in time or... Um, I don't think I can encourage you to do this, to actually go and visit a church that, that does this. But if you've ever seen or if you've ever experienced, and I have been present in a service, and I've also seen on, via YouTube uh, multiple times, that many times what you see in a church that has this speaking in tongues, and, and what they would know as unknown languages that only God knows, first of all, it's not done according to Scripture. Uh, it's not done uh, in order. And it's not done with an interpreter. It's just happening. Nobody's benefiting from it. It's, and he, Paul says, I would rather speak five words that we understand than 10,000 in an unknown tongue that nobody understands. It's always meant to be done in order with an interpreter. And he's speaking about unknown languages, physical, real world languages. Places this importance of not being the author of confusion. Uh, in... in so here's what I want to answer. I want to give a clear answer because I think that's important for you to walk away with and uh, digest. Is speaking in tongues for today? Now, when I'm talking about speaking in tongues, I want to clarify. Does the Holy Spirit give people today the ability to speak in a language they don't know? Um, this... Uh, unknown prayer language that many talk about today and charismatic and many Pentecostal churches is really not a support in scripture that would define that clearly the way that they do it because it is many times a learned ability uh, that they have but let me answer the question is speaking in tongues for today look uh, if you're in first Corinthians I want you to turn back one chapter uh, to verse number eight. First Corinthians 13 verse number eight The Bible says, charity, love, never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Uh, this verse is definitely in context of 1 Corinthians 12, where it's introducing the fact that the Holy Spirit gives to the body spiritual gifts. And these certain gifts are mentioned here, saying that there will come a time that these gifts will stop. Look in verse number 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So in 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible makes it clear that at some point in time, tongues will cease. Uh, often this verse, when, in that phrase specifically, when that which is perfect is come, is believed to be the complete revelation of God. Because it says we know in part, we prophesy in part, meaning we're missing information. We don't have all of God's revealed will for us. And what many would believe is, is that this is referencing when we have the full 66 books of the Bible. We have the complete word of God right here. 
We have this book. It's complete. It's written. Nothing else is getting added to it. God's not. Uh, he's, the apostles are dead and they're gone. We're just continuing in the things the apostles taught us and Jesus taught us. This is all we have. There ain't nothing more coming, right? God's given us everything we need to know. That is widely accepted to be the reason why tongues would cease. Is because we have all that we need to have. There's no more, God doesn't need to speak with these miracles anymore, these tongues. But, and if tongues were ever present in a church, they would need to be done in a biblical way. In 1 Corinthians 14, it is clear uh, that real foreign languages were spoken and then interpreted in a language people understood for the sake of edification. And so I would just ask you, look at what the Bible is saying here. And if you ever are in an experience, you happen to be somewhere else, you happen to hear or be tested or challenged with this, uh, this understanding of speaking in tongues, you need to see it through the lens of Scripture. Is somebody speaking a known language? Uh, is everybody just doing it at the same time? Is it out of order? Is there confusion here? Many times the confusion is not simply the words that are being said, uh, and which would, could seemingly be harmless, but many times it's accompanied with this next thing we're going to speak about, being slain in the Spirit, or people falling out, and uh, people even convulsing and doing various things, barking, dancing. There's various things that go along with this teaching of speaking in tongues in a, in a way that is not understood. So all we can do right now is look at what the Bible says the Bible describes in Acts chapter 2 that these were known languages and the Holy Spirit gave people the ability to speak them so that the message could be communicated. And if and when they were ever used in the church, here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, don't let it be done out of order. One, two, three, speak in a language people don't understand, but there's got to be somebody that communicates the message. So evaluate it in that way. Is speaking in tongues for today uh, we've got the answer, but let me answer this question. This is what goes along with this. Is speaking in tongues evidence for having the Holy Spirit? There would be many churches out there that would seemingly uh, be doctrinally correct. They follow scripture, but then they get to this part of speaking in tongues and they say, here's how you really know that you're saved. You know that you're saved and you know that you're baptized in the Spirit when you begin to speak in tongues. Well, we, we debunked the whole idea of that because we know the Bible says we're all baptized by one spirit. Every one of us, we're placed in the family of God at the time of salvation. Speaking in tongues uh, in the scripture is nowhere presented as something all Christians should expect when they receive Christ as their Savior. And it, the idea is that God doesn't give all of us this ability to speak in languages we don't know. How do we know that? Does anybody in here speak anything other than English? Please raise your hand. Anyone? There you go. Does anyone in here know Jesus as your Savior? The Bible says the Spirit itself bears, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Does anyone here have an assurance that they're saved? Does anyone in here believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? You trusted him as Savior? You've been born again? You've seen a change in your life? Okay, I think I made my point. Uh, speaking in tongues is not, is not presented as something that everyone should expect uh, to receive. Uh, this is a, a fallacy. This is a false teaching. In fact, out of all the conversion stories that you read in the New Testament, only two of them even mention uh, someone speaking in a different language. Uh, tongues was a miraculous gift that had a specific purpose for a specific time. 
It was not and has never been the only evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you have any questions, I'd be glad to talk about it. Uh, but we are moving on to question two. What about this topic of being slain in the Spirit? How many of you, I would, I, I would be interested to know, have ever been or experienced watching somebody or a service that this was taking place? Anybody raise your hand? Oh, wow, I'm surprised. Okay, that's awesome. If you don't know, maybe you've never heard this before, maybe you're watching at home, and I, I just want to explain what it is. What is being slain in the Spirit? Uh, this is um, something, a behavior, something that happens in churches. Being slain, slain in the Spirit happens when uh, a pastor or a minister or a preacher lays their hand physically on someone usually, and that person then collapses to the floor or supposedly becomes overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, it typically occurs in charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches. And uh, it's interesting because people react differently to this being slain in the Spirit. They may lie on the floor for a few minutes. They may convulse or shake. They may cry out unintelligible phrases or simply just lie quietly on the floor. Um, uh, people are often slain in the Spirit. You see it on a lot of large revival meetings. They would call them evangelistic services by like well-known charismatic preachers. And uh, some particular preachers, they have a reputation. That's kind of their thing. They, people get slain in the Spirit there. Um, so let's answer the question, what does the Bible say? Can we say that together again? What does the Bible say? So important. Um, there are a few verses that people that teach this would use as sort of a proof text. Sort of a, um, hey, this is, look, somebody, somebody's falling down in the, in the scripture. Somebody, this is it right here. This is what's slain in the spirit. Here, here's your evidence. I want to look at just three passages of scripture. And I just want to question what's happening here. And then I actually have a, a video for you to watch because uh, this one we could play. Uh, let's look in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Here's one proof text that would be used for this being slain in the Spirit. The Bible says, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. So you've got this instance where the presence of God and, and, and way in the shape of a cloud fills this area. And in this verse, in verse 14, this phrase that says, so that the priests could not stand. To minister. Some say, hey, look, there it is. God's presence came and they could not stand. I just want to, I want to read through these three proof texts and then I want to make some observations to all three of them. Uh, let's look at another verse that's used to explain this. Revelations 1, 17. Revelation 1, 17. The Bible says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Got someone seeing God in the presence of God again, falls down 
as dead at his feet, okay? Uh, Ezekiel 1.28, here's another verse that is used to explain this. The Bible says, As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. And so you see these references, people falling down in the presence of the Lord, falling down in the presence of the Lord. But I want to make some observations here, okay? Let's take it at face value. What is the, what's actually happening here? Um, number one, the biblical, these verses here, the references, they're all talking about people who are falling down by a natural reaction of what they see or experience. Uh, this particular passage, the priest could not stand to minister. Uh, it, it could also mean they could not stay, like they couldn't actually be in his presence. They had to leave. There's another meaning to that verse. But this idea of falling down at his feet as dead or uh, falling on their faces, this is simply uh, them falling down in response to this presence of God, right? Let me make it clear. It does not refer to them falling down because somebody physically touched them. Let me also explain. This is not at all in a passage speaking about the New Testament church. Do you notice that? It's just somebody falling down in the presence of God. Number two, uh, the biblical instances here were few and far between. It's not something that was just so widely known uh, that people uh, were touched and falling down. It's, it's not something that happened. And they, they occurred only rarely in the lives of very few people. When we talk about this topic of what, what is about being slain in the spirit, this is a phenomenon that is the falling down is repeated over and over and over in multiple people in one service. And that's not as, as it is in this, these few verses of people in the presence of God falling down on their face. Uh, it, it's this phenomenon happening to many, not to few. And then also, uh, I want to point out that in these instances, the people are falling on, on their face at all of whom or what they see. Uh, in the slain in the spirit phenomenon, these people fall backwards with people catching them behind them. Uh, that these people that catch them have a, a title many times as the catcher. It's a thing that they practice. Like we practice here at our church, we have somebody uh, uh, that walks the pulpit out and sits it on the stage. It's a job. We pre-planned it. We know who's going to do it. In the churches that practice being slain in the spirit, it's not a natural reaction to the presence of God. It is a pre-planned person that's going to catch them. Uh, and it's, it's a repeatable thing that they're doing. Uh, it's, it's, it's not... Re it's not um, represented in these verses here. Uh, and in being slain in the Spirit, they fall backward either in response to the wave of a speaker's arm uh, or as a result of this church leader's touch or many times a push. All right. Y'all still with me? This is a lot, isn't it? I just want to make it clear and I want to explain, I want to, explain it to you. Uh, here's a quote of, of something that I really couldn't uh, put into my own words, but a quote of, that really just struck with me. We must remember that the church, that's us, we're the New Testament church, is only obligated to follow those instructions clearly given to us in the New Testament that apply to the church. We have to be wise that not everything, just because it happened to one man in an Old Testament experience, doesn't mean that applies to us in the church. 
You follow me? It, it was particular to that time, in that instance, in that situation. Um, we cannot apply an Old Testament event in Israel to the New Testament church with a haphazard disregard of context and dispensation. Uh, even, uh, so I want to read a passage of scripture, and I just want to help that make sense to you. In 1 Samuel 19, something happened to Samuel when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And uh, if, if we use that same thought process saying, hey, look, it happened to them in the Old Testament, it should be part of the church today, then we would have to apply that in every situation, and it does, just doesn't make sense. 1 Samuel 19, verse 23. This is kind of funny. Uh, and he went thither uh, to Naoth and, and Ramah, and the Spirit of God was, also, was upon him also. Spirit of God upon him. Okay, presence of God right there. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? So you've got Saul. The Spirit of God was upon him. And the Bible gives this this is Bible truth. The Bible says he laid down naked all that day and all that night. Listen, you can't just take, this is just a clear example. You can't take people just randomly falling down in the Bible in the Old Testament and say, there it is, we should do that in the church. In the same way we wouldn't say, hey, you remember when Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit and he stripped off all his garments and just lay there day and night? Let's do that too. You don't do that. It's not, amen. It, yeah, amen, right? Uh, you just can't take that thought process. It's not proper. It's not uh, a good way to understand the scripture. All right. Um, I want to show a video now. I, I think we've got it queued up. And uh, I, I just want, to, I want you to watch it. And I want to observe a few things. This is a famous preacher, pastor. He still operates, still does this sort of thing. This is Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn. Go! What's going on? Thank you for showing that. Uh, we could watch that for, it goes on for a long time, and various people come up. There's a boy that comes up later that uh, says he couldn't speak, and uh, he had a stutter, and you got that lady, she had lupus, and um, the thing about this is uh, many people have sued churches that do this because they've been injured, and you have to ask yourself, what does the Bible say? This behavior of a pastor taking their hand and putting it on somebody and that person falling out in the hands of someone else, you have to ask the question, does the Bible 
ever instruct us to do that? The answer is no. It's, there is no scriptural evidence. Uh, at the best, it could be a tradition that somebody thought up or, or something that they worked up. Um, being slain in the Spirit uh, has no biblical basis. This phenomenon in some churches has no resemblance to any biblical command or instruction for the church. It is founded upon emotionalism, personal experience, and popular charismatic evangelists. Being filled with the Spirit is not evidenced by such things like this. The Bible doesn't speak about that. The fruit of the Spirit is evidenced. Being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, having the Spirit is evidenced by a life that overflows with the Word of God in such a way that it spills over in our life. Listen, um, when you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Nowhere in the Scripture does it say when you're touched by a pastor and the Holy Spirit overcomes you, you're going to fall out and shake. Uh, and I challenge you to find a scripture that says that. Uh, this is something where we need to pay attention to because we don't want to be confused. Many people are confused and they want something. They want the Holy Spirit. They, they have a, a void in their life that they're not satisfied, so they show up at a church one day. Maybe it's the church down the road and they're doing stuff like this. The problem is none of that's found in scripture. We have to be a Bible-believing people uh, or else you're just making it up, okay? Uh, there is no evidence for this. I would encourage you, uh, I think it may be in the description or in the comments or maybe we'll add it. Uh, there is a really awesome eight-minute video um, by a gentleman, and I, I'm forgetting. His name is Alan Parr. Uh, he is a really clear Bible explainer. And he gives eight reasons why this is unbiblical, but he explains it so succinctly. So if you ever need to go back and say, what about that stuff again? How do I get an answer about that? Uh, just go back to the link and watch his video, honestly, because it, it's, it's succinct. Uh, you're, you're welcome to rewatch this, but it's very clear. And you could share that with somebody if you have discussions after this. Um, but that is helpful for me. All right, let's get into the third question tonight. That was a fun one, but uh, I tell you what, just because it's happening doesn't mean it's biblical, okay? Right. Just because you see it on TV and it's popular and all these people are accepting it doesn't mean it's right. Uh, if we took that logic that we sometimes have in the church and take it into every other area of life, then we would be pro-abortion uh, and all sorts of other things. You know, just because people say things and, and shout it loudly and, and publicize it does not make it true. You have to ask the question, what does the Bible say? All right, let's look at uh, this last question here that we said we talk about. What about the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit? This one's easier, okay? Easier answer. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Mark 3, 22. And honestly, it's a, it is a sad thing to watch if you ever watch YouTube videos or go to a service. I, I was part of a service, um, nice people. You'll find nice people in churches that believe this. Uh, people in churches that even are saved and they do good, uh, but they're, they're practicing something that is contrary to the, to the Bible. And that's where it is. And uh, many times, and this is in my notes, but many times we like, how do I, how do I treat somebody like that? Are they my enemy? Well, how do we treat sinners? How do we treat our, the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Um, it's, it's okay to, to call out error. That's no problem. But we speak the truth in love. We don't have to hate people. Uh, we don't have to shame people. We don't do that. We're, we're trying to win them to Christ, right? No matter who they are. Uh, but there are uh, good people, good Christians even, that just are following something that's anti-biblical and, and that's an error. And you know what? Each one of us many times walks in our life according to error. We believe a lie. Someone told us something we believed all of our life. Um, it's different than speaking in tongues or being slain in the Spirit, but uh, we all need to get back to what does the Bible say, you know? Uh, I am who you say I am, you know? We need to believe what, what God uh, says about us and what he says about our behavior and our life. All right, let's get into this question here. What about the unforgivable sin? Mark 3, starting in verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devil he casteth out devils. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness." but is in danger of eternal damnation. Uh, verse 29 is the verse that makes us all read and say, whoa, I don't think he's playing around there. You get that feeling? That is major, major verse. This is God of heaven speaking this, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Uh, here's some things to understand about what's going on here. Uh, these men, the Pharisees, they come down and Jesus is casting devils out of somebody. Now, by whose power is he casting those devils out? God's power. The Holy Spirit came upon him for ministry. Uh, he's got God's power. It is the, it, the Holy Spirit's casting out devils. And they are attributing the undeniable Holy Spirit-empowered actions and miracles of Jesus to Satan and the devils. They, they are willingly saying, listen, we watched you do it, but you know what? You, that's really Satan casting out those devils. Um, they were attributing the Holy Spirit's power to Satan himself. Um, these Pharisees, with an understanding of the law and the prophets, understand like these were the spiritual elite. They were, they were there. They knew everything in the Old Testament. They understood what it said. They understood the prophecies. And right before their very eyes, was Jesus, the Son of God, casting out devils. And they had this stupidity about them, this foolishness, this boldness to say, hey, he's actually of the devil. Jesus shuts that down. There's no way Satan's going to cast out Satan, whatever. Uh, but he says to them, listen, uh, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and that he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. Uh, these men purposely attributed the work of the Spirit to the devil, even though they knew the truth and had the proof. And here's what was going on here. 
uh, and this is the best that I can understand this, this was like we were talking about in the Old Testament. This is a, a specific situation recorded in Scripture, a specific story, a specific account of what happened. These men, the Pharisees, were so religiously full in their head. They had all the knowledge, but they willfully ignored the very evidence of the Holy Spirit right in front of their eyes. And they attributed that evidence to the devil. And Jesus said right then and there, you guys will not experience forgiveness. You will not have forgiveness. You will experience what he said here, eternal damnation. Jesus declared that their willful blindness would be unpardonable. So the question is, is this specific blasphemy against the Holy Spirit something that we should be afraid of today? Listen, when we read stuff like this, he that that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Verse 30 continues, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Um, Here's what we need to understand about this, and then I'll clarify some things. Jesus said that specifically to these men because they said he had an unclean spirit. They willfully ignored everything they knew, all the teaching, uh, all all that the Holy Spirit could show them. They just straight up ignored it and attributed it to the devil. And he told them that was unforgivable, and they they were gone at that point in time. Uh, they, they were not going to be saved at that point in time. So the question is, can we do this? Is there an unforgivable sin today? My short answer, and then I'll explain why it's my answer, my short answer is no. No, there's not an unforgivable sin today. Here, you, you are not going to be directly in front of Jesus performing miracles, and he is not going to shout this at you. Uh, this was specific for them. But here's what I will say. Um... Many of us think that we have done things that are unforgivable. That's a lot of times when we read stuff like that, we begin to question what's going on in the inside. We read it. He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. When we read stuff like that, it causes us to question our own status with God, right? Say, is it possible that I've sinned, gone too far? Many times we willfully ignore the Holy Spirit. We willfully ignore what's right in front of our eyes. We willfully ignore our need for salvation. Um, But here's what the Bible says. Uh, This is in the book of Romans. After Jesus died on the cross, went back to heaven. Moreover, Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded did much more abound. We need to understand the simple truth that sometimes we want to believe in our own hearts that God won't forgive us. That the, some of the things we do are unpardonable. We're too far gone. The Bible says where your sin abounds, grace much more abounds. God is willing to pardon and forgive you and offer that forgiveness. So is there anything that I could do in this world that is unforgivable, that, that would cause me to not go to heaven. Well, here's the thing. The only, if you would even categorize it as an unforgivable sin, is very similar to this specific blasphemy. These, these, in this time, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. 
It is the uh, unforgivable sin, I guess, of rejecting the free offer of salvation through Jesus. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. The Bible says he's going around the world. This is in John 16, 8. And he's convincing the world, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Everyone in the world in their heart knows that they're a sinner. The Holy Spirit, that's his job. He's convincing them of that. And when we resist the conviction and willfully remain unrepentant, that would be equal to blaspheming the Spirit. We ignore him. We quench him. We grieve him. The thing is, if you die and you never repent, you never receive this free gift of salvation, there is no pardon. There is no forgiveness after this life. You understand? Uh, The dividing line is death. And you have this lifetime to receive Christ. Uh, For a person who rejects the Spirit's promptings to trust in Jesus and then dies in unbelief, uh, that would be the only situation that would be unredeemable, unforgivable. Uh, But while you're on this side of the grave and uh, while we're upright and breathing, while we're uh, given the gift of today and while we're listening to this, Jesus died for you and it was enough to pay for all of your sin. Jesus was buried and Jesus rose from the dead. And the Bible says if you believe on him, if you call on him, he'll forgive you, give you new life, The Bible says you'll be born into a new family by the Holy Spirit. And uh, you get eternal life in heaven one day. Uh, And that's available now. And uh, there's no promise of tomorrow, but that is available now. So when it comes to the unforgivable sin of today, really, the only sin that's so bad is that sin of continual unbelief and rejection of Jesus. Um, Many have tried, and this is, this is interesting to me, there was a club, uh, I did not write down the name, but there was a group that had this online fad, almost like a fad like uh, eating Tide Pods, right? Or doing these weird things, you know? Uh, but the fad was, uh, it was like a blasphemy challenge. You could look it up, so silly, so foolish. But these atheists or unbelievers, they said, you know what, I'm just going to willfully declare in the same way that somebody that get baptized declares, I'm following Christ, they said, I'm going to get online and declare, I will not follow Christ. And they said, today I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I, you know, they, they tried to reproduce what happened in the book of Mark and also in the book of Matthew. Um, but that's, that was specific to that time. Uh, it's interesting that even somebody that today says they don't believe in God, tomorrow God can save them. God is... Uh, He's a forgiver of sinners, right? So let's not forget that. Here's a key takeaway. Key takeaway uh, for tonight is simply search the scriptures. Ask the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? I'm sure the Bible says a lot more than even what I share with you tonight about these topics and other topics. But when you're confused and you don't know, before you start just assuming and guessing and taking everybody's word on it, Look in the Bible yourself and ask the question, what does the Bible say? Ephesians 4, verse 14, uh, talks about how God gave, the past, uh, God gave pastors and teachers to the church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. Here's, here's what he says, continuing, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. 
There's a lot of scripture that tells you, pay attention. You're going to get confused and deceived. And uh, we need to not be children anymore. Uh, and, And when you were children... Somebody sat in class and they taught you your ABCs, your one, two, threes, and they had you repeat your times tables, and you came to church and they had you repeat John 3, 16. Well, now we grow up and we, we feed ourselves, and maybe you need to start feeding yourself and learning these things. 